Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Good morning once again. If we haven't had the chance to meet, I'm Robbie Itterberg, another pastor here. And as we move into the message this morning, I'm wondering, have you ever missed an opportunity? I'm sure you have. In 1975, Kodak was the king of the photography industry, right? Cranking out film, kind of like printing their own money, it seemed. But In that same year, one of their own engineers named Steven Sasson developed one of the earliest known versions of the digital camera. And he was so excited and thought his bosses would be so thrilled that he presented his idea to them and they were not thrilled. They were threatened. As a matter of fact, they sought to keep this new technology under wraps, hoping it would never see the light of day. And of course, we know that those efforts failed miserably, don't we? And in 2001, late to the party, Kodak decided to buy a digital photo-sharing website named Ophoto. And rather embracing the new wave of the social networking possibilities of photo sharing, they used that platform to try to push their customers to print their digital photos. Ultimately, Kodak declared bankruptcy in 2012. They missed it. They were right there in the middle of it with every opportunity, and they missed it completely. I mean, we can miss opportunities too, can't we? We can miss with jobs, friends, schools, investments. We can even miss the love of God completely. We're going to jump into that this morning in this next message of our sermon series that we're calling Just Like Us, Ordinary People Changing the World. This is a series carrying us through the summer, looking at the 12 apostles, those 12 men that Jesus called to be with him uniquely out of all the crowds. And then he sent those 12 out with authority to heal and to cast out demons and with the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God that would change the world. And through these very ordinary men, God did in fact change the world. And that legacy continues today, that God continues to take very regular, ordinary, normal people like you and me as followers of Jesus to change the world. And so each week we've been looking at one of these 12 apostles and trying to glean what we can from their story about what it means to be with Jesus and to be sent by him. And this morning we are looking at Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus, the one who clearly missed it altogether. We've already begun the story that earlier in the service from John chapter 13, where we see as it opens, Jesus is gathered in the upper room with those 12 apostles to celebrate the Passover meal. And John indicates right at the beginning that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart this world and to go to be with the Father. 
In other words, Jesus knows in this moment that he is going to be betrayed by Judas who's sitting at the table with him. He knows that he'll be betrayed, turned over. He will ultimately be crucified and will die on a cross before he can rise again and ascend to be with the Father. And even knowing all of this, John says that as he's gathered with them, he's loved those who were his own, but now in this moment he wanted to show the full extent of that love. But even now, as they're gathered for this meal, John had said that the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. In the other Gospels, we see that Judas had already gone to the religious leaders. He had already negotiated the price of betrayal. He had already determined that he was going to receive 30 silver coins, which is really very, very little, to betray the Lord. And he was now looking simply for an opportune moment where he could betray him, where there were no crowds around to witness it. He didn't want to make a big scene. And Jesus knows. He knows all of this, and John tells us that he knows that the Father has actually given him power over all things. And so it's like John's setting us up. It's like, okay, Jesus, he knows he's going to be betrayed. He also knows he has all power. So what is he going to do? He does the most shocking thing, I think, for everyone in the moment. Rather than stopping the events that had been set into motion, rather than taking Judas out or at least kicking him out of the group, Jesus takes off his outer clothes, puts a towel around his waist, fills the basin with water, and then begins to wash his disciples' feet. Now, foot washing was common in that day. I mean, it was part of the daily cleansing that you just had to do because you were wearing sandals walking around on dusty roads. It was part of religious ritual cleansing, preparing to go worship in the temple. It was also part of hospitality, so that if you were having guests over, you would make sure that they had the opportunity to wash their feet, or even better, if you could afford it, you had a servant of some kind who could wash their feet for them. Now, let's get real about this. These are feet, and they are gross, right? This is menial work. It's degrading work to the point that if it was possible for the Jewish people, they would not have even a Jewish slave clean people's feet. They would reserve that work for the Gentile slaves. In other words, for those people who were not considered to be the people of God. It's like, okay, it's okay for them to do this work, but it's not okay. It's beneath those who are called the people of God. And have you ever had anyone wash your feet? Have you ever washed anyone else's feet? I mean, there's just something, even if you haven't done it or experienced it, there's something that rises up in us and we're like, Jesus, that's just a lot. But John is telling us that Jesus is doing this to show the full extent of his love, the lengths that he was willing to go for them and for us. But as the story unfolds, we find out that it's only kind of about the feet. 
We see that in the conversation as Jesus gets around to Peter around the table, and Peter's like, Lord, are you going to wash my feet too? And it's like, no, Peter, I was going to skip you. I've done all everybody else. Now, Jesus says, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you're going to understand. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is, just a, this is another sign and a symbol of what I'm going to do later when I go to the cross, because this is how far I am willing to go for you. I will humble myself like a Gentile slave willing to wash your feet. And later, I will humble myself like a criminal on a cross, not to physically wash your feet, but to spiritually wash your soul, to wash you from the sin that has defiled you, that fills you with guilt and shame and condemnation and regret, those things you've done, you've said, you've thought that you can't take back, you can't undo, that plague you, all this that has stood between you and the Father, I will take it for you on the cross, and as my blood is spilled, it is spilled so that you will be spiritually clean. See, the foot washing is pointing ahead to the fact that we all have a need to be cleaned by Jesus. But Peter is confused like we would be, I'm sure, in the moment. And he's like, no, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus says, unless I wash your feet, you'll have no part with me. Again, it's not about the feet. Unless I clean you, you've got dirt on your soul, a defilement at the core of your being, and if I don't clean it for you, we're going to be separated from each other forever. So I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. I'm going to die on the cross to clean what you can't clean yourself. And Peter's still confused, and he's like, well, I don't want to be separated from you, so not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Let's do this, Jesus. And Jesus continued patiently with Peter, like, slow down, Peter. Let me help you understand this. If you've had a bath, you are clean except for your feet because you keep walking around outside. And if I have cleansed your soul, and you have cleansed your body by taking a bath, then the only thing left to do here in this moment is to clean your feet. And Jesus affirms to Peter, you are clean. And he adds, though not all of you, because he knows who is going to betray him. You ever thought, if you've heard this story before, you ever thought about the fact that Jesus washes Judas' feet? I mean, the story started with Jesus knew. He knew. He knew it all. He knew Judas would betray him, and he cleans Judas' feet too. I think this is to explain to us with a beautiful vis visible picture, visual picture of how great, how awesome is God's love for, the, for them, the extent of God's love for us, right? That Jesus, Judas, Jesus loves Judas too, so much that he got down on his hands and his knees and washed Judas's feet, and then would go to the cross and still die. I mean, what incredible love. What wasteful love, really. I mean, Jesus doesn't love the way we love, does he? I mean, we love when somebody is worthy of our love, when somebody deserves it, 
We love when somebody is gonna love us back. But in this moment, Jesus shows what love really is. Right? He shows that it's not about those who will respect you, affirm you, support you, care for you. It's not about those who will love you or who are worthy of your love. Jesus knows. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. And he still loves him. He loves him not because Judas is worthy of his love, not because Judas loves him back. Because Judas does not love Jesus. But how, after experiencing all of this, will Judas respond to this incredible love for him? We see it in the rest of the story that John gives us from chapter 13. And we're going to jump back in in verse 18. If you want, you can follow along on the screen. Jesus says, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Amen. So Jesus is becoming distressed, knowing that his time has come. And so he finally announces clearly to them that one of you is going to betray me. And can you just feel the tension around the table? As they're looking around wondering which one of them it could possibly be. And isn't it amazing that none of them points and says, it's Judas! No one suspects that it was Judas. He was completely blending in with the others. He did what they did. He went where they went. He walked like them and talked like them and acted like them, not just from the outside of the circle, but inside the circle even. He was just like everybody else. No one could tell the difference. Who could it be? And Peter says to John, who's sitting right next to Jesus, hey, ask him. Ask him who it's going to be. And Jesus responds in a a strange way, but John helps us understand that it was because it's fulfilling Scripture. Jesus says, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread after I dip it in the dish. This is 
grabbing onto Psalm 41.9, which had prophesied generations and generations and generations earlier, had prophesied this very moment that even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. This act of Jesus, this sharing of his day, but it was clearly an act of intimacy, of friendship and connection. And so Jesus dips the bread against Judas. Now just picture that moment again. You've got probably a U-shaped table where they're sitting on the outside where servers could come to the inside. This means that Judas was close enough to Jesus where Jesus could feed him. He was in proximity. Could it be that Judas was in the other seat of honor on the other side of Jesus from John? within arm's reach, that Jesus could feed him the bread? Right here, another act of love, of intimacy, of respect, of honor from Jesus to Judas, and Judas misses his love completely. Misses that Jesus has been demonstrating over and over and over again how loved he really is. Covino and Rich is a Fox Sports radio talk show that sometimes I'll listen to when I'm driving. And just a couple days ago, Covino, one of the hosts, was telling a story about his girlfriend. His girlfriend he's so appreciative of because for his job, he has to travel all over the place. And he's going to boxing matches here and there and other sporting events. And he's grateful because she doesn't give him a lot of grief. She doesn't bother him about it. She doesn't care that he needs to do his thing while he does that. She does her thing. And Recently, she had borrowed his brand new car, and she got, brought it back to him, and she said, oh, I love your car. I wish I had a new car. It smells so nice. It's so clean. It's just, it's, it's great. Well, and he felt kind of bad for her, and he's appreciative of her, and so he wanted to do something nice. So he took her car to have it professionally detailed. You know, not just like drive it through the automatic wash, but I mean like the full deal inside and outside where you're vacuuming the french fries out of the crack where they like to live. You know what I'm saying? And apparently her car is well used. Uh, lots of gum wrappers and Starbucks cups and hair. And so he, he sends it and for a couple of hours they're working on it. And he goes back and picks it up and thinks, man, this is, she's just going to love this. Well, he had done this on Monday and on Tuesday, she hadn't really said anything, but he figured, oh, she hasn't really driven anywhere, no big deal. On Wednesday, she doesn't say anything either, and he's starting to feel a little frustrated by the whole thing, because he's expecting, like many of us do, for her to at least say something, oh, that was so sweet, you didn't have to do that. You know, the things we want to hear when we've done something like that. Thursday rolls around, and he's starting to feel like, you've got to be kidding me. So she asks him that evening, how's your night? And he says, well, actually, I'm a little disappointed. And she's shocked, why? And he says, well, because I'm so grateful for you and you're so cool about me having to travel all over the place and so I wanted to do something nice and so I, I took your car and had it detailed and y you didn't even notice, you haven't said anything. And she's like, what? You, you did? She, I didn't even notice. But she didn't notice that all the trash was gone, that it had been vacuumed, that it smelled fresh, that it had that you know, armor all tire glisten going on. She hadn't noticed at all. And he acknowledged that I felt totally deflated at that moment. 
Now, we can talk for a while about, you know, what was his real motive? Was it really because he loved her and appreciated her and wanted to do something nice for her? Or was it really because he wanted to score points for himself? We could talk about that for a while. But whatever his motive, how could she miss it? Right? How can you be that busy, so self-absorbed, whatever, that you could miss something like that? And for us, Jesus has done so much for us. Have we missed it? Jesus had done so much for Judas. Everything that he had taught over all of those years and time together, the miracles that Judas had witnessed, the signs and symbols, the intimate conversation shared with just the two of them walking along the road, the intimate meals, receiving the the bread dipped in the dish, having his feet washed by the Lord, and Judas missed it. God's love wastefully lavished on Judas because he missed it. You can know a ton about Jesus, and you can spend so much time in church, in studies, reading the Bible, praying, giving, serving, and you can miss His love completely. Your life may look a lot like other people's who are doing the very same things, but you can completely miss it. And when that happens, Judas's story becomes our story. John said as soon as Judas had taken the bread, Satan entered him, and he went out. And the passage concludes, and it was night. It was dark out. I mean, yeah, it was physically dark because it was nighttime, but for John throughout this gospel, darkness is so much more than physical. It is a spiritual reality contrast with the light of God's love found in Jesus the Christ. And so what John is saying is that in this moment, Judas has finally and completely missed the opportunity to receive and experience the love of God for him. And he has entered into the darkest of nights in his soul. In his rejection of Jesus, his refusal to believe, his refusal to allow Jesus to be the one who could wash him clean, he goes out, he finds the religious leaders and the soldiers. He leads them to the Garden of Gethsemane, another intimate place where they had shared time together. And then Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss on the cheek. And Jesus is arrested. Over the course of the next day, it seems like darkness continues to spread and reign. As Jesus is put on trial, as he is beaten and mocked, ultimately taken outside of town, hung by his hands, his wrists, and his ankles on a cross, and from noon until three, the sun itself went dark in the sky until finally the light of the world died. And when Jesus died, the darkness swallowed Judas completely. He was tormented by guilt and regret and shame. John MacArthur, who referred to in this series before, wrote a book, Twelve Ordinary Men. And reflecting on Judas in that, he says that Judas was already in a hell of his own making. His conscience would not 
be silenced. The darkness had swallowed him. The darkness of the separation from the love of God had swallowed him because that's what hell is, separation from the love of God. And he had missed it. He had rejected God's love. He had run from it. So much so that it became this crushing weight that he could not get rid of and he tries to rid himself of the guilt and the shame to the point that he takes his own life. No repentance. No turning back to the love of God but only seeing and being swallowed by his own failure. In that moment, missing the love of God who invites all of us in our deepest and darkest failures and darkest nights of our own soul to turn back to him, to be cleansed, not just physically, but to be cleansed by the love of God in our soul, that wasteful love of God. Is God's love being wasted on us? Are you missing the enormity and the beauty of God's love for you? There's so many ways in our lives that we get glimpses of that love. So many things that point us back to him. Forrest Gump is a classic movie at this point, has withstood the test of time. And at one point in this movie, Forrest is serving as a soldier in Vietnam, and he ends up running away from a gunfight, and after he stops, he finally realizes that he is all alone. And he begins desperately looking for his best friend, Bubba. So concerned about him, he's willing to run back into the battlefield to find him. But as he's looking for Bubba, he sees this boy laying on the ground. And he couldn't leave them scared as he was. And so he throws Tex on his shoulders and runs out and brings him to a point of safety. Turns back and runs back into the battlefield. And Forrest tells us that every time... I went back to find Bubba. Somebody else was saying, help me, Forrest, help me. And he would carry one after another from danger into safety. He eventually comes upon Lieutenant Dan, who is calling in an airstrike to wipe out the whole area. And as Forrest throws him on his shoulders, Lieutenant Dan is cursing him out. I didn't ask you to take me out of here. I didn't ask you to do this for me. And Forrest one more time runs back into the battle, into the fire, into the explosions, finds his friend Bubba badly wounded, picks him up in his arms, and tenderly carries him to safety. Why does this story grab at us? Why do stories like this captivate something in our hearts? Because it is a story and an image like so many others, like washing of the feet that point us to the profound love of God for us, that wasteful, sacrificial love, the love of a God who would go back into the battlefield for your soul, would go to a cross, would serve you beyond what you can imagine so that you can be cleansed in your soul, so that you wouldn't have to experience the reality of hell separated from his love for you, but instead can allow that love to wash over you, to clean you, to fill you. And this is what God wants for you. This is why Jesus came. This is what we celebrate at the communion table, the wasteful love of God, who doesn't just love those who love him, but loves all of us. And at this table, we see the beauty 
and at times wasteful love of that God. As you prepare to come, is his love being wasted on you? Are you missing it? Let's examine our hearts as we prepare to come to this table together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your love is deeper and higher and wider and more profound than we can really grasp. And yet we long for it. We long to know it, to experience it, to live in it. Lord, as we come to this table, will you allow us to see clearly and to taste and experience your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, I invite, invite you as we prepare for this table to affirm our faith together, to examine our lives together as we use these words from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. This is question number 97, inviting our deep reflection. What is required to the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon Him, lest coming unworthily they eat and drink judgment to themselves. Friends, this is the table of Jesus Christ. It is not our table. It's not the Presbyterian Church's table. This is His table inviting you to come to him, the host, to see in the elements the extent of God's love for you, to taste physically and to see with your eyes the spiritual realities of his love for you. Let's pray as we prepare to receive from him. Oh, great and awesome God, give us eyes to see, hearts to Receive and understand. Holy Spirit, break through the walls and the barriers that we have up that are causing us to miss your love this morning because we confess in the hardness of our heart and our rejection, our autonomy, that we can miss it. We don't want to miss it. Holy Spirit, unite us in this time with these ordinary elements. Unite us with our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we can experience his love and we can love you back. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.